all people that you've gathered here today. Lord, we thank you for our community and our schools and our kids and our uh, our families and all the all the many things you've blessed us with. We thank you for some fall weather. And Lord, we uh, we pray that we can be lights for you. We pray that we can go out into our communities and and be uh, different and and be disciples of your word and disciples of your kingdom, Lord. Uh, we thank you for Ben, and we thank you for our walk through Genesis. We thank you for this morning as we get to uh, wrap that up, and Lord, bless the, the words that Ben has to speak to us, Lord. Let them be from you, and let them let them bless us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we are going to be all over. <laughs> so... Uh, if you have quick fingers, you may want to try to keep up. Don't go too fast. I don't think we're in a burn band, but we certainly don't want to start any fires from flipping through the pages too quickly. Uh, we'll start in Genesis 127, uh, in Genesis 128, and then, uh, like I said, we're going to walk through a whole lot of Genesis and a whole lot of the New Testament um, just to kind of give us an overview. We've been in this book for a year and a half, a little over a year and a half, and sometimes we forget. There, there's two ways to study Scripture. Do you know this? There's two ways to, to think about it. You can study Scripture with a rake, and you can study Scripture with a shovel. And so there's sometimes when it's important for us in the Bible where we come to a passage and we break out the shovel and we just dig deep into that one little passage and mine for the gold that's there. And other times it's important for us to grab the rake and instead of digging deep, just look at the vast terrain that the Bible lays out for us. And so today we're using a rake, not a shovel. Uh... That's as close to farmer terminology as I can get it. So if it doesn't, that's it. I, um, she'll be mad at me, and I'm upset at myself as well. I bought, uh, we were at Walmart the other day. Um, it's our favorite place to go. And I bought one of those confetti dills that you pull, and I was going to do it after Genesis, and I don't know where I put it. So <laughs> somewhere, either in the church or at my house or in Ira in general, there's like a bag of little confetti poppers. Uh, I bought the little ones because I thought, you guys might be packing, and if I do a big one, it may not end up well for me. Uh, the context of Genesis, if you remember, Moses is the one the Lord inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this for us. Uh, Moses is the one who... Um, God is using here in the time in, in the history that's happening is there the Israelites have have exodus they've, they've gone out of Egypt they're walking in the wilderness they haven't come to the promised land yet and so as they're walking as they're leaving out of of the exodus they're asking a lot of questions who are we you have this people group that's largely been enslaved for, for most of their life right when they come into Egypt there's 70 of them and now when they're leaving there's this large nation that's just wandering around so they're who are we why were we in egypt why did we need to have an exodus out of egypt how do we end up there in the first place like what was the main problem and how do we fix this problem and then another important question is well where are we going to go all of these are what moses has in mind as he's writing genesis and and uh, moses wrote the first five books of the bible genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy the pentateuch as he's penning these things and so uh, let us pray and then we're going to just do a rake over the top of Genesis and see how uh, neat the Lord has it for us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for today. Uh, we thank you that we do get to gather together, that we do get to um, look at this book, God, and see that it is 50 chapters of your words to us. Your words that primarily, God, are about you, revealing who you are and how you work 
for us. You're calling us to repent and to come under your rule. To believe in you and to trust in you. God, I thank you for the book of Genesis, this foundational book that you've given us in the Bible. I thank you for our church's diligence to just walk through this book slowly but certainly. I pray that the fruit would come from... uh, from that diligent study that we've done as we read the rest of the scriptures, the rest of the word, the other 66 books of the Bible that you've given us, that we would see what you have more clearly. We thank you for Jesus, for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we saw in Genesis chapter 1 uh, that there's this creation, and a lot of Genesis is built on patterns, and you can divide divide the book of Genesis up, Genesis up several ways. There's several covenants that take place within the book. The first one, you could argue, is with God and, 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 and Adam, but, but really the first time the word covenant's used is with Noah, when God's with Noah, and then we have Abraham getting a covenant, and then that covenant getting reaffirmed with each of Abraham's children. Uh, we saw from Genesis 1 through 11, that there's a clear break after Genesis 11, where up to that point, God has dealt with just mankind in general, right? You have a global flood. You have a global tower. You don't have a family. It's just these people. And then all of a sudden, in Genesis 12, we have the call of Abraham, and it's just one family that we trace out through the rest of Genesis. But we also have the Toledots, if you remember those. And those are the generations that are mentioned in the book of Genesis. There's 10 of them, and they serve as like chapter titles for us, where there's a, a Toledot of creation, and then a Toledo of Noah, and a Toledo of Jacob, and all the way through the book, and so we can divide it up that way. There's a lot of things for us here, and so when we look at the beginning of Genesis, and we see that God created, there's a pattern to the creation that God does. He creates the domains, and then he creates those who have dominion over the domains. The day and the night, the heavens and the uh, the heavens like the sky from the water on the earth and then the land from the water. Those are the first three days of creation. And then the next three days are the sun and the moon. So what rules the day and the night? What has dominion? Well, the sun and the moon. What has dominion over the, the skies and of the water? Well, the birds and the sea creatures. That's what's created on the fifth day. The sixth day, what runs on the land? Well, the livestock, the beasts, the creepy things, everything on the land. Mankind is built into that creation. And so we see in Genesis 127 and 128, this important call that God has given us. And so let's read it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we have this call, this command from God to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28 that mankind has dominion over the rest of the creation. And it's not meant to be a dominion that just pushes everything down. It's meant to be a dominion where God places Adam and Eve in a garden, and they're meant to cultivate the garden, to keep the garden, and they're meant to expand the garden. That man's rule should be beneficial. It should be good for others. And we see uh, some, if you, if you find some liberal scholars, what they'll say is the Bible's not true because if you come to Genesis 1, there's seven days of creation. I laid out when I preached, I believe there's seven literal days of creation. And, and one of the main arguments I have for that is in the next couple chapters, we're going to see a talking snake. And so if we don't think that Genesis 1 is literal, we're going to have trouble with the serpent in Genesis 3. 
than he is. And so we come to, uh, some scholars will say, well, Genesis isn't, isn't a literal because you have creation in seven days. And then in Genesis 2, you have the creation of man. So which one happened? All Genesis 2 is, is it's a zoomed in look at how God creates man on the, the sixth day. And he does it in such a unique way. We know when God speaks, creation happens. All throughout Genesis 1, God speaks and then things form. He speaks and life comes. And we see in Genesis 2, you remember how God formed Adam? He gets the dirt and he builds the dirt up. And what does God do? He breathes. And he breathes life into Adam and life comes into him. It's such an interesting way, and it's why in John chapter 1, when John talks about Jesus being in creation with God because he is God, that he's called the Word of God. And that's why we call this the Word of God, because wherever the Word is proclaimed, life happens. We saw in Genesis 2 that that the first time in all of creation, God said something wasn't good. First six days, God created and it was good. God created and it was good. God created and it was good. The first time we see something was not good was when God recognizes that Adam was alone. He says it's not good. And so God brings all of the animals to Adam. There's an interesting thing that happened. I did not know this when I preached Genesis 2. Maybe I should just start with Genesis 2, and we'll, we'll postpone the summary until next week. The word Adam, Adam, is Hebrew for man. And all throughout Genesis 2, it's a man, a man, a man. And the way they wrote it in Hebrew is it's a man. Until you get to Genesis 2.20, where God changes it from a man man. He names Adam right there. Adam, Adam, man. And we know in the new, we all know in the Bible, if you name something, it's this idea of you have dominance over it. So God is saying, I'm over Adam. And then Adam gets all of the other animals in that same passage. He names all of the other animals, but there's not a helper fit for Adam there. They're too different from Adam. A dog and a human are great and compatible, but they're not the same. It's not a helper fit for Adam. And so God does surgery on Adam, and he removes his rib, and he forms his wife Eve out of his rib. And it's interesting that God takes the rib. He could have taken the foot. Because Adam has authority over Eve as her husband, and he doesn't. He could have taken the head or the neck, because Eve as the wife has a lot of influence over Adam, but he he doesn't takes the rib from the side because they're co-bearers of the image of God. God created them male and female in the image of God. What does the rib do? Well, it protects the inner organs. It protects the heart of man. And so we see Eve being formed and she comes to life and when Adam comes out of his surgery, his words, he looks at Eve and he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's really interesting that the first thing that Adam notices about Eve, although there is obvious differences between Adam and Eve, she is a female and he is a male, and there are differences, but when Adam sees Eve, the first thing he says is, you're the same. We're both human beings here. Different, but complementary. We fit together. And we see in Genesis 3 that there's a fall. That this serpent weasels his way into the garden, which is Adam's first failure. He wasn't keeping the garden pure. We understand in West Texas, if you see a snake, it needs to be killed. Amen? Adam didn't. 
And it's interesting the way Satan attacks humanity. God created Adam to be the spiritual leader of his family, Eve, and then God gave mankind, Adam and Eve, dominion over the animals. Yet Satan comes as a serpent, and he goes to the woman to try to tempt the man. He subverts the created order. And so they take the fruit, they rebel against God, they bring sin into the world, and all of a sudden everything changes. God rightly could have just wiped everybody out and said, I'm done with this. If you're going to rebel against me as a king, I will show you what kind of king I can be. He would have been just, he would have been holy, he would have been right, it would not have messed his character up. But instead, God doesn't do that. In his grace, in his, his sovereignty, and his being able to understand how he will be showing his glory, show his goodness to us, as God allows Adam and Eve to physically continue living, although they've brought spiritual death in upon humans. But there's this glimmer, just this tiny little glimmer of hope in Genesis 3, 15, and it says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking about the serpent, between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. If you want the cool word to impress your friends, the theological term is proto-evangelion. The first gospel. That a child of Eve is going to crush the head of the serpent. And so, so much of the rest of Genesis is filled with genealogies, and it's filled with stories of family and humans. And what we're doing is we're tracing this line of, okay, well, who's the child of Eve that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? In other places, they call it the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, who's the one God's going to send to bring, to make all the wrong things right, to undo the sin that Adam and Eve did in the garden. And so we go throughout the rest of Genesis, and there's some high points that I want to point out to you. Uh, in, in Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 through 17, as Adam and Eve introduced this sin, they continue to have kids, and their kids have kids, and their kids have kids. But what reproduces more quickly than Adam and Eve is the sin that's in humanity. And so we get to, to Genesis chapter 9, and we get to verse 12, and what we see is that God has recognized and he's looked around and he sees that there, there is so much evil that, that God decides, I'm going to wipe out humanity. Except for one person that we learned is, is Noah. By the grace of God. We laughed when I preached through it and I still laugh because I still see him sometimes. It's so funny to me that that's what we paint on the nurseries. Or that's the toys that we give to kids. One of the three greatest punishments from God in the Bible, let's throw it in the nursery and let the kids play with it. There's no corpses that come with the ark. But what God says is I'm wiping everyone out except for this family, and I'm going to save them not because they're right, not because they're good, but because I'm good, and by my grace and my grace alone they'll be saved. So Noah builds an ark. He has to cut the lumber. There's no Lowe's to go to and buy lumber from that's warped. He had to make his own warped lumber. And God sends all kinds of animals to him, and they load up on the ark, and God floods the world. 
everything except for the family and the animals on the ark die. It's almost like a reset. We can see it almost as a new creation. When, when God first created, there's waters over all of the earth, and then the, the dove is floating, or the, the Holy Spirit has, is floating over the waters, and God brings everything out. It's the, kind of this idea of a new creation that's happening in the earth. This global flood takes place, and then the waters rescind back into it, and the ark stops. And you would think, okay, now we got rid of sin. Now everything is going to be perfect. All the sinners died. They didn't believe. Noah had faith. So now we'll go to the, one of the first things Noah does when he gets off the ark. Do you know what it is? Plants grapes, makes wine, gets drunk, passes out naked. What we see happening is that sin is not external. It's internal. It's something within our hearts. We can flood the entire world and sit on a boat for 40 days and 40 nights, and by the time the water rescinds, it's almost two-thirds of a year, and we will not escape sin. But God in his grace and God in his mercy makes a covenant with Noah. Verse uh, Genesis 9, 12. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all the flesh and all the waters never again shall become a flood and destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all the flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. It is so interesting to me that the rainbow is what the LGBTQ community has tried to claim as their own. Because listen, what the rainbow is, is the sign of a covenant that God is not going to just throw his wrath on us right now, that he will hold it back until the right time. It's in a way an appropriate symbol that there is mercy extended to us, that there is grace extended, and it will, God will come in justice and he will come in righteousness, but at this moment, God is, is gracious in holding back that punishment. Did you ever notice that it's a bow that God hangs up in the sky? It's a weapon of war. God's saying, I'm not going to point it at mankind. I will point it up into the heavens. It's a sign for us. Something that we should keep in mind. When we keep going through Genesis, we see some more genealogies. We see some more things. And then we get to Genesis 11, and we see this, this other event that takes place that has more of an impact than we, we kind of realize. It's this, this tower that these humans build. And it's so funny to me that I think like, unity is what we all cry for, right? We want to just, let's just get along, let's just cooperate. And what we see in Genesis 11 is that's what humans were doing. We have a goal, we'll build a tower, we'll get up into heaven, we'll use our works to literally get to heaven. We'll build this, this giant tower that we can climb up into, and then once we get there, we can do whatever we want because we've earned our way into heaven. That It's this cooperation, everybody's on the same page, let's do it, let's all sin this way. They don't say that, but that's what they're doing. And there's some funny things about the story. One of the, the, Moses makes sure that we know that God has to come down to see the tower. Isn't that funny? They're trying to build a tower to heaven, and God's like, that's too small. I've got to go down and look. But do you know the sin that the Bible says in, in Genesis 11? 
people say, let us make a name for ourselves. And so what God does is he, in his grace, confuses the languages and scatters the people so that they can't all cooperate in this sin anymore. It's more difficult. I wish learning a second language was like that. It's not. And he scatters the people. And then we have a genealogy, and in Genesis 12, we get the call of Abram. And do you know how God calls Abraham? This is an important connection. Remember, Genesis is broken up in two sections. 1 through 11 is this cosmic world with Genesis. And then 12 through 50, God picks one family, and he kind of walks through this family and grows them. But you know how God calls Abram? We're meant to see this in correlation to the Tower of Babel. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, God says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. The sin in Babel was they tried to make a name for themselves. And God says, that's not how you do it. I'm God. You're not God. I'll make your name great if I choose to do so. And so he picks Abram, a moon worshiper. And he brings him uh, out of the land of Ur. And we see that God uses Abram and Sarah, this, this older couple who have no kids. And God says, you're going to have so many kids, you're not going to be able to, they're going to be more numerous than the stars of the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seas. And these two older people who are well past childbearing years are like, how can we do that? That's their struggle. When they sin, when they have their big sins that are recorded in the Bible, it's wrestling with that tension. of God promises this, but I just can't see how God's going to do this. What I want to highlight for us is this covenant God makes with Abraham. And the covenant's basically threefold. You'll have land, you'll have uh, a people, and you're going to be a blessing to uh, to be a blessing. You're going to be blessed to be a blessing. But the way God does this in in Genesis, he he covenants three times. In Genesis 12, it's the star. In Genesis 15, he affirms it. And in Genesis 17, he gives the sign of the covenant with Abraham, which is circumcision. And because we're doing a big wreck, I don't have to talk about that. But in Genesis 15, God shows up to Abraham, and, and he puts him in a sleep. And he says, bring me these animals. We're going to have a sacrifice. This is how you would cut a covenant. When you make a covenant in Hebrew, the word is cut a covenant. We just say make. And you would cut the animals in half, and you would put them on both sides. And then both parties who make the covenant, who make the commitment, would walk between the animals. And what you're doing is you're saying is, if we break this covenant, let what happened to the animals happen to us. And so Abraham does these things. He sets the animals. He's fighting all day long to keep the birds off of the animals. And then God makes him fall into a sleep. And what we see happening is, is God shows up. But he shows up. Let's just read it. Genesis 15, 18. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Sorry, 15. I don't know where I'm at. My Bible's not lining up with my recorded Bible. This is the text. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Let's, let's pause there. Do you know the significance of those? 
when they're wandering out of Exodus, remember the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, how does God guide them? With a flaming pillar at nighttime and smoke. During, so a flaming, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On the, that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The question we have to ask is, where is Abram? He does not walk between the animals. God doesn't let him. It's God saying, I know you're going to break this covenant. I know you're going to mess up. I know you're not going to keep your end of the bargain, so don't even commit to it. But what I'm committing is I will walk between the animals, and I will make a covenant with you that I won't break my end of the covenant no matter what you do. That it's God saying, in my grace and in my mercy, I will make this commitment with you, Abraham, and your family and your descendants. And then we can continue down the road. We see uh, Sarah and Hagar enter the picture, and there's some struggles there. And then finally the Lord blesses Abraham and Sarah with a son, and his son is named Isaac. And we get to a pivotal text in Genesis 22. This is Abraham's only son. This is the son, his whole life that they've prayed for, his whole life they've just wanted this one child that can continue the covenant on, that can continue the family line. This is what Abraham and Sarah prayed for. And Sarah was barren and could not have children, had this miraculous way to do this. And then God looks at Isaac, God looks at at Abraham, and he says, yeah, you're going to need to sacrifice Isaac. Gather up all the wood, go make an altar, tie Isaac to the altar, and try to strike him down and kill him. Most likely, when, and I think Hebrews even says this, that, that Abraham did this because he believed God would resurrect Isaac. But if we look at Genesis 22, verses 13 and 14, we see this. Abraham has the, the sword up, the knife up, and is getting ready to, to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called that place, the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. One of the cool things about the location where that happens, on the mount that that happens, is likely to be the mount where the temple was built. Which means where countless lambs and calves and pigeons were killed to atone for the sin of man started with Abraham. Where God says, sacrifice your son, and then he provides a substitute. And we fast forward and we see that, that Isaac meets Rebekah and they have a, a, a marriage and they get married and they are struggling to have kids and then they end up do having kids and they have twins And, and we see that in the womb, <laughs> Rebecca's stomach is rocking because the kids are just fighting in the womb. It's really hard to discipline kids that aren't born, isn't it? And so they are born, and we see that Esau comes out first, this hairy red man. And then we see that Jacob comes out, and Jacob is holding on to Esau's heel as if he's trying to trip him or pull him back in. I've not been, never mind, we won't even talk about that. Their whole life, that's the story between Jacob and Esau. It's just this constant fighting, this constant fighting. Esau's the oldest, and Esau is Isaac's favorite. And so we see that that one day Esau is kind of the manly man, the rugged man. If I'm being honest, and I've said this before, and I still think it's true, if I have to pick who I'm going to spend a day with, Esau or Jacob, I'm going with Esau all day. 
He's a rugged man. He's a manly man. He likes to hunt. He's good at hunting. Esau is a mama's boy. And so they wrestle back and forth. They fight back and forth. Esau ends up selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. That's how little he cared about his birthright or how hungry he was. And then Jacob ends up stealing the blessing from Esau, stealing the blessing. He was at the birthright, so there's this sinful deal. He leaves. He, uh, Jacob has to flee because Esau's so mad at him, he's going to kill him. And when Jacob flees, when he walks out of the land, the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, he sees this dream of these angels ascending and descending on this ladder with the Lord sitting at the top of it. It's where heaven meets earth. It's earth at this place, and God covenants with Jacob. I'll bring you back. I'll protect you while you're gone. And Jacob leaves. He gets married. He has all these struggles with his uncle Laban. He has two wives. They have all these kids. And then finally, when Jacob's coming back in, he has to reconcile with Esau. And he knows that Esau's coming. And so Jacob gets scared. And so he he sets up all of his troops. He sets up all of his family so that his favorite ones are in the back and his least favorite are towards the front. How would that make you feel? And then he sets his family on the other side of the river, and Jacob's left alone. And we see in that moment when he's alone, it's, it's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. He's alone, and then all of a sudden we see this man show up, and they just start fighting. That's all the details we're told at the beginning. They just start wrestling. And, and Jacob is a good fighter. His whole life, he's dependent on his cunning tongue, his, his physical prowess over others. And so Jacob says uh, to, to the man that he's wrestling, which we later learn is, is God. Jacob says, uh, God says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. That's what Israel means. When we talk about the Israelites, it means striven with God and with man. And I love that at the end of the story, in Genesis 32, 31, it says the sun rose up, and as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. At the end of the fight, God touches his hip, pops it out of socket, and for the rest of Jacob's life, he's no longer able to rely on his physical like prowess and being able to run away. He's forced to trust God. Time goes on in Genesis, and we see that Jacob is the only patriarch who has multiple sons that are going to inherit this blessing. He has Reuben, his oldest, but Reuben, every time we see Reuben make a plan, it fails. We see Simeon and Levi, his next two oldest, who just end up being bloodthirsty brothers who who, uh, are trying to justify a wrong that was done to their sister, and in doing so, they murder a whole town. And then we see a man named Judah, who's the most unlikely hero of all. A brother who sells Joseph into slavery. It's Judah who goes, let's just sell him. Let's just make a quick buck off of Joseph and not worry about this anymore. It's Judah, we're told, that he like leaves after that, and his life is meant to be compared to Joseph's. And we see Judah leaves, and, and he has sons that are so wicked, the Bible tells us, that God killed two of his sons. Three times in Genesis, God kills people. Two of them, like his sons. You have Noah's Ark, Sodom and Gomorrah, and Judah's sons. That's the level of depravity his sons were at. And Judah refuses to acknowledge that his sons were in sin. Instead, he looks at the wife, Tamar, and he says, you must be the problem. 
so he sends Tamar off until his oldest gets uh, older enough, old enough to marry her, which is really just Judah's way of punting and trying to not get his last son married to a daughter-in-law who he thinks is killing his sons. But then we know Judah sins terribly. He has this habit of finding prostitutes. And Tamar knows this, and so she sneaks her way in, is in, impregnated by Judah. And Judah sees this as the opportunity to kill Tamar. He says, perfect, I can kill you now righteously and feel good about it. And Tamar was smart, and Tamar said, well, this is the man who impregnated me, and we learn it's Judah. And their son's born, and guess what? That's the line of the snake crusher. That's the line Jesus comes from. Well, at the same time, we see his brother Joseph. Right, Judah ends up repenting and turning back, and, and the Lord uses those things to grow him. But Joseph's story is completely different. Joseph never really seems to fail in, in the Bible. He was kind of a, a tattletale, but outside of that, everything else we're told about Joseph is he always does the right thing. He always makes the right choice. He does what he's supposed to do. His brothers sell him into slavery, and then he ends up becoming the leader of this prison. And then uh, this lady lies about him, so, or the leader of this house servant, and the lady lies. So he ends up at the bottom of prison, and now he interprets dreams, and so he's at the top of the prison. And then finally, he's the number two man with Pharaoh. Everything's good. The family comes to him. All is good, and all is calm. Everything in Genesis seems to work its way towards this end. And then we see in Genesis 50, 20, with all of the family that's been in Egypt, Jacob dies, and the brothers are worried that Joseph is now going to take revenge on them. And Joseph tells them this in Genesis 50, 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. We can look back at Genesis 3 with the snake slithering into the garden and trying to cause evil and recognize that that's the theme verse of Genesis. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And that there's all of these broken people littered throughout this book of Genesis that God continues to use because there's no perfect people in the book of Genesis. And then we see that Joseph dies. Before he dies, he says, put my bones in a coffin, or, or the Hebrew word is ark. Put my bones in an ark. And when God rescues us from, the, when ex rescues us from Egypt, carry them with me and bury me with my fathers. This is interesting. Your Bibles don't show it, I don't think. Mine, mine doesn't. Do you know what the first word of Exodus is? And. It won't show, mine doesn't show it. Yours might have a note on there, but it's a, a vibe. It's an and that happens. And so you read the end of Genesis, then you can jump straight to Exodus. It goes, and, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who came up to Egypt with Jacob. What we learn is Genesis is the foundation. And God continues to reveal himself after this. And he does so more and more and more. But more than that, Throughout the Bible, God uses Genesis to continue to draw our minds to him. So much of the New Testament pulls from Genesis. I want to show you a few of these. In, in creation, in Luke, I'll just turn there. In, in Luke, chapter 3. Verse 21 and in 22, 
We get the story of when Jesus is baptized. Have you ever read this? Look, it says, And now when the people were baptizing, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Just like in creation in Genesis 1, we hear the voice of God. We see the Holy Spirit like a dove ascending, hovering over the waters that Jesus is being baptized in and creating this new creation that happens in the New Testament. You know what happens after Jesus is baptized? In Luke, we have a a genealogy. And then in chapter 4, it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Holy Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So we have this new birth, this new creation, and then immediately after this, we have this idea of being tempted by Satan in a wilderness with food. He's hungry. It's this continual call back to Genesis. That there's this new creation that's taking place through Jesus. We can see in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 to 38, it says this, but, but concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah... So will be the days of the coming Son of Man. As for in the days before the flood, when they were eating and drinking and marrying and uh, being given and married, until the day when Noah entered the ark, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. We see the idea that the second coming of Jesus when he comes back is going to be like Noah's ark. Not with the flood, but with Jesus coming back. We are saying over and over, there's one way to be saved. We need to repent, to turn in Jesus, to trust in him in faith. And there's a lot of people who will not care to hear that word and will not believe us, and they will not recognize it until Jesus shows up, just like when it started to rain. In Acts chapter 2, verses 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 5 through 12. We have Jesus has ascended into heaven, and Jesus says, there's one coming after me that's going to, to come to you too, and when he comes, it will be good for you. And so this is, this is Pentecost, but if you've never read it, then you, you might have this exact, so Genesis 2, chapter 5, and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And then listen to what happens. And, they, and the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native tongue, Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and the visitors of Rome, both Jews and the proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We we hear them telling in our own tongues, in our own languages, the works of of God, and they were all perplexed, not knowing what does, saying, what does this mean? Do you see what's happening? It's the reversal of the Tower of Babel, where God scattered the tongues, and now in this new creation that Jesus is making, they're speaking in tongues. It's not gibberish. They're hearing not only their own language, but their own language in their own dialect. 
they hear the difference between West Texas and Alabama Southern twang. It's this new creation making the wrong things right. We see when God covenants with Abraham. If we read John chapter uh, one, uh, sorry, John chapter. Nope, sorry, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Paul says this, And then when we, uh, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For Abraham was justified by works. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift as his due to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of blessing the one whom God counts as righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We see this covenant with Abraham coming back up in the New Testament. We say Abraham wasn't saved because he was a great and awesome dude who had it all together. He was a pagan moon worshiper from Ur that God saved by his grace and his mercy mercy alone. And he can save you and I too. We can look at John 129. And the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. This is John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist looks up, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What was it that was caught in the thicket when Isaac was being sacrificed? The ram of substitutes. We can see in Mark 2.17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I am not to call the, uh, I came not to call the righteous, but to the sinners. What was it that Jacob left with after he wrestled with God? A limp. A need. 1 Corinthians 15.21, For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. What is it that Joseph asked everybody to do? carry his bones because he knew the resurrection was coming. We have hope in the gospel. The Old Testament is not a separate book from the New Testament. It's all God's word revealing itself. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament for us. And what does it do? It points us to Jesus. It doesn't say work harder and do better and get your act together. It says trust in the one whom God sent, who is God in the flesh, and came and crushed the head of the serpent. Who died. But what they intended for evil, God intended for good. And it's through the death of Jesus that if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're saved. That's what Genesis points us to. It points us to Jesus. But life is still hard. And sin largely still reigns in much of our lives. Even if we're believers, there's still sinful tendencies, sinful things that we do. But because the snake crusher came once, And, and, and died in our place was the ram that was sacrificed, the, the lamb of God sacrificed for us. That by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, we might be saved too. 
And so then now we have this work. If we're, we're saved, that's justification. Now we have this, this rest of our life is this sanctification process of God growing us more and more in him. It's still hard. Life is still a struggle. Things still don't work like the, fully like they're supposed to be. But every now and then we get glimpses. We get hopes of what's going to come. And I love that if we're believers in Jesus, God didn't call us to be like, all right, you're saved. Now just sit on your blessed assurance and wait for Jesus to come back or to die. No, we're given a purpose. We're given a calling if we're believers in Jesus Christ. It's not to sit back and wait for Jesus to come. It's to tell others there is a judgment coming and there is hope for you to get out of that judgment. But his name is Jesus and you have to repent and turn from your sins and believe in him to do so. That's not just my job as a pastor. That's our job as Christians. What, God, what they intended for evil, God intended for good. See, in, in, in 2 Corinthians 5.17. Now let's do 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we might be made right with God through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? That's what Genesis is about. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. Brothers and sisters, Genesis is a great book for us because it sets the foundation. It's not a finish line, though. We look ahead to Jesus. And we follow after Christ because of him. He, he saves us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today and for this book of the Bible that you've given us for Genesis. God, there's so much there. Just that quick run-through, I feel like we've left so much of it out. 